broken fat cells that cannot divide, that are forced to expand, to become distended and become inflamed, are at the root of insulin resistance that is diabetic, that is metabolic syndrome, that is metabolic dysfunction physiology. That's something I've discussed many, many times. Amazing. Check out this review on bone marrow and liver from Heart and Soil Supplements from Sandy. She says, I had two early miscarriages in a row before trying bone marrow and liver supplements from Heart and Soil Supplements. About 30 days into first taking them, I found I was pregnant and I'm about 14 weeks now. I have three boys and I felt pretty nauseous with all of my other pregnancies. With this pregnancy, I've barely felt sick at all the whole first trimester, and my hemoglobin results came back much higher than it ever has before in my previous pregnancies. I truly believe I was able to conceive and have such a smooth pregnancy because of the amazing benefits of this supplement. I'm so stoked about this one. I think some of the most impactful, most moving stories I hear about the supplements that we make at Heart and Soil Supplements are people with improved fertility who are able to get pregnant, have better pregnancies with this and also who are giving it to their kids. So this is bone marrow and liver from Heart and Soil Supplements. We use all of our marrow and liver from cows raised on grass-fed, grass-finished farms with no pesticides in New Zealand. These are the finest supplements on the planet. They're packaged in glass and they change lives. If you can get fresh organs, great. If you can't or won't get fresh organs, check us out at heartandsoil.co to reclaim your birthright to optimal health. And I almost forgot, I have to do the quick change for the intro of this podcast to tell you guys about the new Kale is Bullshit shirts. These are available at kaleisbullshit.shop now. You've got a seed oils are bullshit shirt, which you may want to get after listening to this podcast on diabetes. We've got the old school Stay Radical shirt. We've got multiple colors on the Kale is Bullshit shirt. We got hats, all kinds of good stuff. Look at this, you guys. There it is, because brassicas are bullshit. Isothiocyanates are bullshit. Kale is bullshit. Represent here, represent here. I can't wait to see some of you guys in a grocery store or something. I'll give you a high five, a fist bump, or a hug. Showing the world that kale is bullshit and that meat and organs are the best things on the planet. That's what's up, my people, if you want to thrive. Kale is bullshit.shop. This week's podcast is about diabetes, how it's diagnosed, how mainstream medicine treats it, what I think is really causing it, and then how you can reverse or treat it. But this is not for you if you only have diabetes. What if you're pre-diabetic? What if you know someone who's pre-diabetic? So many people have issues with pre-diabetes, obesity, and these are all preventable. I break it down in this podcast. I hope it's helpful for you or someone you know. And I wanna give a shout out to my sponsors for this podcast who make this possible every week. We're gonna start out with White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. You can find them. Uh, there, if you need to get regenerative meat, they have lamb, they have pork, which is really good. They have all kinds of good stuff. They have organs, they have suet, they have animal fat, they're regenerative, grass-fed and grass-finished. They're amazing people doing good work in Bluffton, Georgia. And you can get 10% off your first order with the code CARNIVOREMD at whiteoakpastures.com or just for listeners of this podcast, CARNIVORE5 gets you 5% off recurring orders at White Oak Pastures. Check them out get some regenerative meat and organs in your life. That is how we support farmers who are doing good work and it is better for the planet. Absolutely, I love what they're doing at White Oak Pastures. Also wanna give a shout out to my friends at TryLGC, that is Let's Get Checked. They are try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com. If you guys watch my recent videos on my blood work from July and August, you know I think a lot about my hormones. 
I know a lot of you men out there think about your hormones. Well, if you want to know what your testosterone is doing, you really need to get testosterone, estrogen, prolactin, SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, free androgen index, and cortisol. And let's get checked. Let's do this at home. It's super easy. You can get the kit. It'll be delivered to you overnight. You collect your blood at home yourself. It's super convenient. You send it back to them. You get results in three to five days. They're reviewed by a nurse and a physician. The nurse contacts you to discuss. They're CLIA approved. The whole process is completely anonymous. And they have other blood work at uh, Let's Get Checked as well. They're pretty cool folks. TryLGC.com front slash Paul Saladino will get you 25% off of your blood work at Let's Get Checked. And as I have discovered, it's super interesting to look at testosterone, to look at SHBG. I'm doing a number of things now to try and decrease my sex hormone binding globulin. So I'll be doing more labs in the future and I will update you guys on those. But if you wanna get your male hormones checked or female hormones, or you wanna get a CRP, or you wanna get a CBC or a Chem7 or a lipid panel, you can get them all at Let's Get Checked. You can get all these from the comfort of your home. And again, you go to try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com front slash Paul Saladino to get 25% off your blood work there. Know what's going on in your body. That's what you need to do, you guys. And let's talk about salt. I want to give a shout out to my friends at Kalima Sea Salt who make an amazing zero microplastics sea salt. You can go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima Sea Salt. You guys know that every year, 8 million tons of plastic garbage are dumped into the ocean. This is so scary and bums me out so much when I'm surfing, but that's where your table salt comes from. The garbage breaks down into tiny pieces called microplastics. The salt from the ocean crystallizes around the microplastics, which becomes the core of salt crystals, which means that when you sprinkle the salt that you're eating on your steak or whatever, you're eating little pieces of plastic. 90% of sea salts tested had microplastics, but not Kalima sea salt. In fact, one of my friends recently posted something. There was a microscopic analysis of a piece of uh, Velveeta or American cheese, and it was full of microplastics. I'm not really surprised about that, but that's the kind of stuff you'll see in your salt if you look at it under a microscope. But what's cool about Kalima is it's from the Salineros. It's from these salt flats in the Kalima salt flats in Mexico. So you support all natural, unrefined, handmade, hand harvested sea salt and the Salineros there working in Mexico to harvest this stuff. I think it's really amazing. It's very crunchy. It's such a good sea salt. Go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of zero microplastics, Kalima sea salt. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Higher Dose. You can go to Higher Dose, H-I-G-H-E-R-D-O-S-E.com front slash Paul to get 15% off your infrared therapy, whether it's a PEMF mat, which comes in two sizes, or a sauna blanket. These things are pretty cool. I've got one of the infrared I've got one of the I've got one of the PEMF mats right here in my podcasting office. Uh, PEMF stands for Pulsed Electromagnetic Field. It works by sending electromagnetic waves through your body at different frequencies to help promote your body's own recovery process. You feel relaxed, grounded, rebalanced. They're built with a thick layer of 100% natural purple amethyst crystals. It looks really cool and mesh fabric across the entire mat. The Earth has natural EMF frequencies, and these mats are built to sort of recreate that to help you calm down. It's a really cool therapy. So whether you deal with chronic pain, work out frequently, just need a moment to relax, lying on these mats a couple of minutes a day will help ease your mind and body from the inside out. You can get 15% off with the code Paul at higherdose.com, front slash Paul, or just use the code Paul at checkout. All right, guys, that's it. On to the podcast. Diabetes. Wanted to talk about this one this week. In fact, I can't think 
of any more important chronic disease state to talk about for humans. One of the things that I've discussed in the past is that I strongly believe that most chronic illnesses are connected with insulin resistance, dementia, cancer, even autoimmune disease, definitely cardiovascular disease, obesity. These are all conditions that involve insulin resistance, the insulin resistance syndrome, which is essentially a diabetic physiology. It's a diabetic phenotype. So understanding diabetes and what causes it and how to reverse it is critical to becoming healthy humans. I think that more than any other condition for humans, this is what we should study and understand because if we can reverse this and really understand what is at the root of diabetes, we will make massive strides in the health of the population. Consistent with that premise, I think it's really important to understand how the food we eat affects our insulin sensitivity or pushes us toward insulin resistance because rather than simply waving a hand and saying, it's just ultra processed foods that cause us to become fat and sick, understanding what portion of those processed foods, what ingredients are the real drivers of disordered human physiology, that gives us a specific target. I have friends in the nutrition space who simply say, if we look at the data, it's very clear that ultra processing of foods is horrible for humans. And I would agree with that. There is a really interesting study that was done by Kevin Hall and his research group where they compared two diets that were matched for calories, energy density. They were matched for macros, so protein, fat, and carbohydrates. But these diets were given to people ad libitum, which means they were given to people on a metabolic ward and the people could eat as much or as little of them as they wanted. And so they had the same fiber, the same salt, the same sugar, the same macros, carbohydrates, fat, and protein. But what researchers consistently saw in that study was people ate more of the ultra-processed diet relative to the non-processed food diet. Remember, these were matched for caloric density, sugar, salt, fat, carbohydrates, protein. As similar as you can get, one is highly processed, one is not. But people ate more of the highly processed foods and became fatter in these weeks, I believe that was a two or a four week trial. It was a crossover trial, but people gained weight on the ultra processed foods and actually lost weight on the non-processed food diet. So it's very clear that ultra processed foods, you guys know what I'm talking about, cookies, cakes, candies, crackers, breads, these sorts of things versus unprocessed foods, real meat, fruit, vegetables were included in this study. That difference is a massive thing for humans. Simply making that transition will improve your health and your weight and your diabetes. But I wanna get down a little further. If you look at that study by Kevin Hall and his associates, what you see is actually that in the ultra processed food diet, there was a higher percentage of a specific fat that I've talked about a lot. I'll get to that a little later in this podcast. But let's talk about diabetes and I'll wrap it back around to processed foods at the end. So. What is diabetic physiology? There are two types of diabetes. There's type one and type two. I'll get to type one at the end of this podcast. That's an autoimmune phenomenon for diabetes. Type two is the main type of physiology that I wanna talk about in this podcast. It involves a condition called insulin resistance. Later on in the podcast, I'll describe insulin resistance. I'll describe what causes insulin resistance at the level of human physiology. And I'll describe what I believe causes the human physiology to get broken like that. So that is at the root of diabetes. But let's start really high level with what the Mayo Clinic, one of the preeminent sources of health information and nutritional bastions of medicine, ivory towers, what does the Mayo Clinic recommend for diabetes? If you look at the Mayo Clinic website, they have diabetes prevention, five tips for taking control. Number one, 
lose extra weight. I would agree with that. I don't think that this is really easy for many people because the mainstream recommendations for Western medicine don't give us the tools to lose weight. If you're interested in how to lose weight, specifically how to lose fat, I did a podcast on that two to three weeks ago for you guys. So I'll talk about my perspectives in that podcast. The high-level takeaways from that podcast were that I don't think counting calories works long-term for humans. I don't think restricting your food intake works long-term for humans. I think the best way to lose weight, as we've seen perhaps from the Kevin Hall study looking at ultra-processed versus unprocessed foods, is to improve the quality of your foods, and then your appetite will go down naturally. Starving yourself, eating to less than satiety puts you in a calorie-restricted prison. So I don't think that simply eating less is the way to lose weight sustainably. But I would agree with the Mayo Clinic that losing weight is a good way to start with your diabetes. I just don't think we give people good tools for how to do that. Uh, number two, be more physically active. Of course, we could all be more physically active except for the ultra marathoning athletes among us. Sure, this is the common thing. Eat less, move more. Doesn't really work for most people, but some level of physical activity is great. Number three from the Mayo Clinic, eat healthy plant foods. What is that? <laughs> they say fiber-rich fruits promote weight loss, lower the risk of diabetes. That's not really true in interventional trials. Perhaps an observational epidemiology that there's an association there, but when you look at the interventional trials, eating higher fiber foods doesn't actually result in weight loss long-term. I had a friend who was in the Rangers when I was growing up, and he told us that as part of their training, they were starved, they were calorie-restricted, uh, on one of their exercises for many days. And a couple of the guys on his ranger training team would eat toilet paper and drink water afterwards. And I thought, well, that's essentially what you're doing when you're telling someone to eat a high fiber diet is just eating something that's gonna fill your stomach. Again, that's not the way to get satiety. You need nutrients and the absence of foods that hijack your satiety. I've talked about what foods those are in the past. I think specifically seed oils are a major culprit there. Uh, processed foods appear to do the same thing, mostly because of their content of seed oils and probably because of the breakdown products of those seed oils. I'll talk about more of that later in this podcast. And processed sugars appear to act differently than sugars in the whole food matrix. I'll address that later in this podcast as well. In the plant food section, they take a decidedly traditional stance. They want you to eat um, fruits, non-starchy vegetables with leafy greens, broccoli and cauliflower, legumes, beans, chickpeas, and lentils, whole grains, whole wheat pasta, bread, other whole grain rice, whole oats, and quinoa. Remember, this is a recommendation from the Mayo Clinic for diabetes and how to prevent it. And they're telling you to eat a really high grain-based carbohydrate diet. Um, so we'll talk about that. I would disagree with that one uh, strongly. They're, number four is eat healthy fats. And this is where I start to differ very strongly from the Mayo Clinic and feel like they are extremely antiquated and an anachronism in the medical world. They say that the Unsaturated fats, both monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, promote healthy blood cholesterol levels and good heart and vascular health. Um, yeah, so if you've listened to any of my work in the past, you know that I'm not convinced that quote unquote healthy blood cholesterol levels, that is a lower level of LDL, can be any sort of metric for cardiovascular disease prevention or prediction in the absence of a metric that gives us a sense of insulin sensitivity. So just lowering your LDL independent of knowing what your triglycerides, HDL, and fasting insulin are doing is a very dangerous metric to have, though that is what most of Western medicine does. As you've seen, if you've listened to my other podcasts on lipids, you know that eating more polyunsaturated fats may lower your LDL, but will raise your LP little a and oxidized LDL. Mayo Clinic excludes that and then goes on to recommend olive, 
sunflower, safflower, cottonseed, and canola oils. So here is the Mayo Clinic recommending seed oils for those of you who are worried about diabetes. As you'll see later in this podcast, I think this is the absolute 180 degree wrong thing to do. And I think this is promoting the development of diabetes. Olive oil, low linoleic sunflower or safflower are probably much better than higher linoleic cottonseed and canola oils. Soybean oil is often consumed and is very high in linoleic acid. But if you've listened to my information in the past, you know that I'm not a huge fan of any of the liquid oils. Even low linoleic acid sunflower oil or olive oil is going to have significantly more linoleic acid than an animal fat, like a tallow or a butter or a ghee will have. I think those are the best fats for humans. So number five on the Mayo Clinic is skip fad diets and make healthier choices. Well, uh, many fad diets, they say, such as the glycemic index, paleo or keto diets, may help you lose weight. There is little research, however, about the long-term benefits of these diets or their benefit in preventing diabetes. I find that pretty striking uh, and completely false when there was a recent consensus statement from the American Diabetes Association looking at the data behind low-carbohydrate diets and diabetes, and the American Diabetes Association in 2019 actually took a position uh, endorsing the offering of low-carbohydrate diets to people with prediabetes or diabetes but the Mayo Clinic doesn't seem to have gotten that memo. Here is a position statement, a consensus report on the nutritional therapy for adults with diabetes or prediabetes. This is from Diabetes Care Journal um, from 2019. And as you can see here, if you're watching the video on YouTube, they do review the evidence for low carbohydrate and very low carbohydrate diets, noting that benefits of these diets are hemoglobin A1C reduction. Hemoglobin A1C is an average of the blood sugar over the last 90 days and gives us some sense of glycemic control, which is often a metric we look at in diabetes. Weight loss is recommended, no surprise there. Um, lowered blood pressure results from these diets, and uh, there are increases in HDLC and lowered triglycerides consistently with those diets, which are great things that often indicates, almost always indicates, a, an improvement in insulin sensitivity. So if you're interested, you can find this. This is a nutrition therapy for adults with diabetes or prediabetes, a consensus report. So I don't understand why the Mayo Clinic uh, wants to categorize ketogenic or low-carbohydrate diets as a fad diet or even a paleolithic diet, which I think is a step in the right direction as a fad diet. But this is how it sometimes happens in the ivory towers. Hopefully, most of you watching this podcast or listening to this podcast saw the reel that I posted on Instagram or the YouTube short that I did about actually going to the Mayo Clinic cafeteria when I was recently in Arizona. I went to the cafeteria at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale and filmed myself asking them what oils they use in their foods. Any guesses? Seed oils. Pam was the answer. That is a canola oil. Again, some canola oils have lower amounts of linoleic acid than uh, grapeseed or soybean or cottonseed oil, but still you're getting a pretty high amount of linoleic acid in those seed oils along with many of the breakdown products of the linoleic acid, which we'll hear about later in this podcast, uh, aldehyde derivatives, specifically things like HNE when those fats are heated. So this is a major problem for humans, and it's no surprise that the Mayo Clinic both recommends those oils, uses them in their cooking, and ignores the data regarding possible harm with those oils. I'll also point out that at both the Mayo Clinic cafeteria in Scottsdale, Arizona, and the University of Arizona Medical School cafeteria in Tucson, or in Phoenix, there are two different campuses for the University of Arizona Medical School. That's actually where I went to medical school. Um, there were 
lots of processed sugar, lots of seed oil, lots of grain options on display uh, for patients, students, physicians, and nurses to eat. So I did multiple reels kind of calling out the hypocrisy within our medical system when we can't even offer our medical providers, our patients, our doctors in training, any food that has any sort of literature backing or is really healthy for humans. There wasn't even a vegetable uh, easily accessible in these campuses or any uh, food that was minimally processed. It was almost all processed foods at the Mayo Clinic cafeteria, at the University of Arizona cafeteria, and at the snack bar at the University of Arizona in Phoenix College uh, campus. So it's just an abysmal, scary world out there for our doctors in training and our doctors and nurses and patients in the hospitals. So really, Paul, what's the big deal here? What's the burden of diabetes anyway? Well, I'll share some graphics from a good friend of mine, Jeff Nobbs, who I'll hopefully have on the podcast soon with uh, Tucker Goodrich. Tucker has been on the podcast in the past. This one goes up to 2020, and you can see here that in 1960, the rate of diabetes in the United States was 0.9%. 1960, or 1958, perhaps more accurately, 0.9% of the population diagnosed with diabetes, steadily rising through the 80s and 90s, data points into the 2000s. The most recent data point is 2020, 8.3% of the population has diabetes diagnosed. I think of this as the proverbial tip of the iceberg. I think there's a massive underdiagnosis of people with diabetes and prediabetes. This is a continuous phenomenon. And I think that if you have prediabetes, if you have an elevated hemoglobin A1C, if you have elevated fasting blood sugar, if you have elevated fasting insulin, or if you have an elevated HOMA IR, which is a calculated measure of fasting glucose and fasting insulin, then you have the same physiology of a diabetic. You just haven't had it as long. Your fat cells aren't as broken, something I'll talk about later in this podcast. You're not as insulin resistant. You probably haven't developed as much atherosclerosis, which is a absolute downstream consequence of this physiology in the human body, but you're well on the way. You're on a train from Los Angeles to New York, and you're probably somewhere around, I don't know, Missouri, um, but you will get to New York soon enough. And You've, you've started taking the journey if you have abnormalities of any of those metrics. There are metrics that we use looking at the metabolic syndrome, high triglycerides, low HDL, waist circumference that's elevated, elevated blood pressure, et cetera. And much of the population has at least one of these metrics suggesting that the majority of the population is on the diabetes train from Los Angeles to New York, metaphorically, they're on the train. You don't want to get on that train because every step, every foot you go on that train, you are putting your body in harm's way and you have physiology progressing throughout your body connected with all sorts of problems, whether it's breakdown of your eyes, whether it's vascular damage, whether it's atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, whether it's brain changes associated with brain insulin resistance and connection with dementia, all of those things are progressing once you get on that train. Do not get on the diabetes train. Do not have any degree of insulin resistance if you truly want to be healthy. So I think that what we're seeing with 8.3% of people in 2020 diagnosed with diabetes is that 8.3% of people on the train have arrived in New York and have full bone diabetes. But I would suggest that perhaps 80 to 90% of US citizens of Americans are on the train, are on the diabetes train and are along that journey. And I'll show you a study that suggests the same thing. Now let's look at obesity, which is connected with diabetes. You can see that in 2017, 42.4% of 
US adults were obese. If you add overweight to obesity, these are different metrics based on BMI, this number goes around 70%. How can 70% of the United States be obese or overweight, but only have 8.3% with diabetes? Well, it's because most of these people are on the train, but haven't fully arrived in New York. So this is a scary thing to corroborate the notion that so many people are unhealthy. You can look at this study. It's one that I've talked about many times, the prevalence of optimal metabolic health in American adults. It's a national health and nutrition examination survey, 2009 to 2016. And as you see here, they say that changing from the ATP3 guidelines to the more recent cut points for the metrics of metabolic syndrome decreased the proportion of metabolically healthy Americans from 19.9% to 12.2%. 12.2% of Americans, when this study was published, were probably not on the diabetes train. Previously, they thought 19.9% were not on the diabetes train. Now we think 87.8% of our comrades, perhaps those of us listening to this podcast, are on the diabetes train. This is a big deal. So what causes this and how do we reverse it? When we're trying to address the question of what causes diabetes, we can look at health behaviors or we can look at actual physiology within the human body and get very granular. Let's start with health behaviors. If we think that we are getting fatter, that would be true. As you can see, obesity rates are rising in the United States. But what is causing that? Is it because we're exercising less? No, if you actually look at the data, we are exercising more or at the same level as we have in the past. So it's not that we are more sedentary. For those of you watching, I'm showing data corroborating the notion that we're actually exercising more or more percentage of Americans are exercising in 2017 than were in 1995, perhaps, where you can get this data. You can also look at the consumption of different foods and see that our consumption of red meat has gone down in this time. So anyone who believes that saturated fat is a major driver of the diabetes and obesity physiology has a lot to contend with when those two things are inversely correlated, meaning that as we're eating less red meat and less saturated fat, we're getting fatter and we're becoming more diabetic as a population. So it's very difficult to blame red meat or saturated fat from animal foods on any of these problems because they're inversely correlated. I'm not sure how you can make that argument at all without any sort of correlation to fall back on. You can also look at other types of food consumption and see that we're eating slightly more sugars, but not significantly more. We are eating more calories, looking like we are certainly eating more processed foods. So we're hungrier, not sure why. There are many people who have theories about this. I would posit that it's probably related to linoleic acid breakdown products affecting satiety in the brain through the cannabinoid receptors. I've talked about this in the past with Jeff. I've talked about this in the past with Tucker Goodrich, and I'll talk about it with Tucker and Jeff in the future. And you can also look at a correlation, which is very strong, between increased consumption of linoleic acid from seed oils and obesity. Again, this is just a correlation. We cannot draw a causative inference, but there is actually a strong correlation there. If we are going to make a hypothesis, and I think we should hypothesize, I think that we should make considerations here. We should think about what might actually be causing this epidemic of diabetes, obesity, and chronic disease in the United States. Then we have to look for things that are correlated to begin our hypothesizing. 
We shouldn't look for things that are inversely correlated to hypothesize. We should look for things that are positively correlated. And linoleic acid is one of those things. I would argue that linoleic acid is probably the most positively correlated thing with these problems in humans. Doesn't mean that it's what's causing it. I'll share data later in this podcast that I think uh, makes it look very suspect and uh, makes the case look very concerning for the consumption of excess amounts of linoleic acid. For those of you watching, I'll show two graphics that I think are important here. This first graphic is looking at trends in daily calories from major food groups. This green line at the top here is grains. So you can see our consumption of grains went up until 1998 and then has gone down since then. There's a red line going right through the middle of this, which is vegetable oils. So vegetable oils are clearly correlated. There's a um, slightly different colored green line that is slightly upward sloping, which is our consumption of meat. But if you break down that, you can see we're eating more chicken and more pork and less red meat. So um, that's important to consider there. These are the major trends in our food groups from which we can begin to hypothesize about what might be causing this. And this is a very striking graph. Certainly our consumption of seed oils, soybean, corn, canola, palm, sunflower, cotton seed, and peanut has gone up significantly in the last 100 years. This graphic actually goes from 1909 to 2019, and it is incredibly steep. The major component of our diet now in terms of vegetable oils is soybean oil. That is followed by what looks to be corn oil and canola oil with palm oil playing a significantly less role, but more than other oils such as cottonseed, peanut, or uh, grapeseed, et cetera. So again, these are just correlations, but it's a striking correlation. and. There's lots of good data to show us that the U.S. consumption of linoleic acid has gone up very strongly. Here's an article looking at the increase in adipose tissue, so fat tissue linoleic acid levels of U.S. adults in the last half century. They say that over the last half century, 50 years in the United States, dietary intake of linoleic acid has greatly increased as dietary fat sources have shifted toward polyunsaturated seed oils, such as soybean oil. They say that our results indicate that adipose tissue, so fatty acids in the adipose tissue, linoleic acid has increased by 136% in the adipose tissue over the last half century. This increase is highly correlated with an increase in dietary linoleic acid increase over the same time. So this isn't to say that we can absolutely pin this on linoleic acid. We don't actually know what's going on here for sure, but we'll get into in a moment all of the signs all of the data that points a very suspicious, concerning finger at linoleic acid. In fact, let's just back up for a moment and think about this. There must be something causing this decline in our health as humans. And I think that uh, possible culprits are increased red meat, which we know is not actually increasing at all. Uh, it could be saturated fat, which has gone down in the human diet. Could it be processed sugars? Absolutely, that's probably playing a role. Could it be linoleic acid? It could be. We'll look at the data regarding that. Uh, and I'm open to any of uh, your other ideas regarding this. Some people believe it's EMFs. I don't think that's a major factor. I think it could be things like glyphosate and pesticides, though that's hard to assay as well. And the exposure is certainly increasing over the last uh, century. And there are many people who believe that's a major factor. I think it's prudent to avoid those as well. So we need to think about what the major culprit here is so that we can take action and avoid it as a population. If we simply wave our hands, like I suggested earlier in the podcast, and say it's ultra processed foods, then we don't have a clear message for people and how will we ever make significant change. If we can really do good studies based on compelling hypotheses 
that show that something linoleic acid is the problem, then we can either legislate or develop educational materials and get things like Tostitos and chips cooked in linoleic acid off the shelves. Um, interestingly, there has been a massive shift in what French fries are cooked in. You guys may have seen the reel that I did when I was in Phoenix. I went to Smashburger and a number of other restaurants and asked them what they cook their food in. The majority of places cooked in canola or soybean oil. One restaurant said they cooked in a combination of canola and olive oil. I wonder about the quality of their olive oil. I went into a Greek restaurant that said that they cooked in olive oil, but it actually they cooked in olive pomace oil, which is very low quality olive oil. It's from the discarded pulp of olives. It's not actually the first pressing or a good quality olive oil. So they told me it was olive oil and it was lower quality olive pomace oil, which is probably highly oxidized. One place, a Mongolian grill, even told me they soak the grill in canola oil overnight. And I went to Smashburger. They said they cook their burgers in tallow or they put butter on the grill and they cook their French fries in tallow, which I thought was great. And then I actually did a little more research and talked to the corporate for Smashburger and realized that they cook the fries in a mixture of tallow and canola oil. So better than McDonald's, which is gonna cook in either canola, cottonseed, or peanut oil, pure seed oil, which is highly oxidized, but they were using some tallow in the fryer at Smashburger. Look, I don't think eating French fries is a good thing in general. I don't think we should be deep frying our foods in general because of breakdown products of linoleic acid like HNE, something I'll talk about a lot as we get into this podcast. And Deep frying foods does that. When I was at the University of Arizona hospital cafeteria, I asked one of the nice ladies working in the cafeteria what kind of oil their food was cooked in. She said canola oil. They had a lot of fried foods. They had chicken fingers and French fries. This is the kind of stuff we serve people in the hospital. I have no idea why. And she said proudly, she changes the canola fryer oil every two days. And I thought, she's proud of the fact that she's changing the canola fryer oil every two days but you're deep frying foods in oil for two days straight. That's going to create so many toxic aldehydes, so many breakdown products of linoleic acid, including HNE and others, which we know are implicated in massive problems for humans. So this is what's being served in restaurants, cafeterias, in hospitals, in medical schools. It's everywhere. Um, I think it could be a major problem for humans. If it's not, we need to understand that and figure out what the major problem for humans really is. I found this article to be really interesting. 4-hydroxynonanol, which is HNE, a toxic aldehyde in French fries from fast food restaurants. This is an article from 2015 in the Journal uh, of the American Oil Chemistry Society looking at HNE in French fries. So they said, frequently consumed foods containing considerable amounts of HNE, a toxic aldehyde, may be a public health concern since HNE toxicity is related to a number of common pathological conditions. Yeah, I would say so. They say earlier in the abstract, French fries, which contain higher levels of linoleic acid, also contained more HNE. It's clear that HNE is produced during the heating process of the frying oils and is incorporated into French fries. Okay, let that sink in for a second. We have toxic aldehydes, HNE. I don't think anyone really believes that 4-hydroxynonanol HNE is a benign thing for humans. I think most people would agree that HNE is a problem for humans. Where does HNE come from? It comes from the breakdown of linoleic acid in the human body or outside of the human body. Eating foods cooked in fryer oil, eating deep fried foods, especially foods cooked in oils in a fryer that are high in linoleic acid is absolutely problematic for humans. Is it any wonder that when we look at junk food consumption, hamburgers, McDonald's, that that looks to be bad for humans and the red meat gets blamed when probably it was the french fries or the high fructose corn syrup in the milkshake that are causing the problem, not the meat on the bun. Although 
I know you guys, the meat on the bun at McDonald's is not the highest quality. I get it. The bread is problematic too. There are seed oils in the special sauce. But if you go to McDonald's, the burger patty is the least bad part of that equation. Absolutely the least bad part of that equation. The French fries cooked in oil with high levels of H&E are probably one of the most damaging parts of that. But how often do you hear about that? And every single hospital cafeteria I went to had those on offer. And no one would claim that those are healthy for humans. So let's return to diabetes. I've talked a little bit about the health behaviors that are associated with diabetes. Americans are exercising more. We are eating more calories. That's probably a problem. We are eating more vegetable oil. We're eating a little bit more carbohydrates and grains, but that's gone down in the last 10 to 15 years. We're probably eating more processed sugar and we're eating less red meat and less saturated fat. But you can't blame it on red meat and saturated fat. You can't blame it on exercising less. We're eating more for some reason. Please refer to the conversation with Tucker Goodrich or look for the next one if you want to hear about how linoleic acid byproducts can sabotage satiety and cause you to eat more. I also talked about that in the podcast on how to lose weight previously. So let's then return to what is actually going on in the human body. What do we know about diabetes physiology? I've said insulin resistance. What is insulin resistance? It's when the cells, generally we're talking about cells, muscles or liver, or could be fat cells, could be brain, could be the whole body, refuses to respond to the signals of insulin. Why does that happen? It's complicated physiology, but I think anyone who really understands this deeply will agree that insulin resistance physiology starts in the fat cell, the adipocyte. It starts with broken fat cells. Again, look at the podcast on how to lose weight for a deeper dive here, but broken fat cells that cannot divide, that are forced to expand, to become distended and become inflamed, are at the root of insulin resistance that is diabetic, that is metabolic syndrome, that is metabolic dysfunction physiology. That's something I've discussed many, many times. Broken fat cells. There are two things a fat cell can do as you try to stuff more nutrients into it. It can balloon or it can divide. Those are respectively hypertrophy or hyperplasia. Adipocytes in diabetic physiology appear to have broken hyperplasia. They cannot divide. They can only expand, they can only hypertrophy. And what appears to happen is as these fat cells expand, they become distended, they release inflammatory mediators, they release lipokines, they become resistant to the signals of insulin, and they start releasing free fatty acids all of the time. We know that people with pre-diabetic physiology or diabetic physiology have higher levels of free fatty acids in the blood. Those are also called non-esterified fatty acids. And those fatty acids in the blood signal to the muscles and signal to the liver to become insulin resistant. We get into some nuance here because when you are in a ketogenic state, when you are fasting, you will also have higher levels of non-esterified fatty acids because the fat cells will be releasing those free fatty acids into the blood. And you do get something called physiologic insulin resistance at the level of the muscles primarily, but also that can happen at the level of the liver. But the difference is that insulin levels are low in that state. And if you return carbohydrates to the system, you will regain insulin sensitivity. This is a physiologic adaptation to starvation or ketogenic diets or low carbohydrate diets that allows us to spare glucose for red blood cells, testicles, adrenals, brain, et cetera. So it's normal physiology to have physiologic insulin resistance. Pathologic insulin resistance happens when you have high levels of insulin. The body is trying to signal to the fat cells, to the muscle cells, to the liver, to take up glucose and to take up free fatty acids, to take up energy currency, but those tissues are refusing that because the fat cells are broken and they are sending out all sorts of signals to the body to refuse the actions of insulin. So then we come back to the position where we must ask what causes broken fat cells? 
I'm glad you asked. There's pretty good evidence that HNE, 4-hydroxynonanol, the breakdown product of linoleic acid, is a major culprit in what causes broken fat cells. I'm not quite sure why this isn't discussed more in Western medicine, but articles like this, I think, are critical and help bridge the gap between what we see in a research lab and what happens in a clinical setting. The title of this study from Free Radical Research from 2013 is The Role of Physiological Levels of 4-Hydroxynonanol on Adipocyte Biology, <laughs> Implications for Obesity and the Metabolic Syndrome. So this is done in cell culture, and what they found was that our studies demonstrate that acute and repeated exposure of adipocytes, fat cells, with physiologically low concentrations of HNE, a toxic aldehyde from the breakdown of linoleic acid, are sufficient to promote subsequent oxidative stress, impaired adipogenesis, that is the hyperplasia that I was talking about, alter the expression of adipokines and increase lipolytic gene expression and increase free fatty acid release. So they go on to say these results provide an insight into the role of HNE-induced oxidative stress in the regulation of adipocyte differentiation and adipocyte and adipose dysfunction. Taken together, these data indicate a potential role for HNE promoting diverse effects toward adipocyte homeostasis and adipocyte differentiation, which may be important to the pathogenesis observed in obesity and metabolic syndrome. Basically what they're saying is that HNE causes impaired adipogenesis. HNE does not allow the fat cells to divide. That leads to hypertrophy and broken fat cells. One more study that shows the exact same thing. The title of this study is 4-hydroxynonanol. That's HNE. Causes impairment of human subcutaneous adipogenesis and induction of adipocyte insulin resistance. That is the beginning of insulin resistance systemically. Again, where does HNE come from? The formation of toxic alpha-beta unsaturated 4-hydroxyaldehydes like HNE in thermally oxidized fatty acid methyl esters. If you look at the study, there's a lot of complicated organic chemistry, but the takeaway from this study is that HNE comes almost exclusively from the breakdown of linoleic acid in the human body or outside of the human body, as we saw in the studies looking at French fries. The very concerning hypothesis here would be that HNE, which impairs adipocyte differentiation, adipocyte hyperplasia, causes adipocytes hypertrophy, causes oxidative stress, upregulates lipolytic gene expression, increases free fatty acids, leads to broken fat cells and insulin resistance, that compound comes from linoleic acid in the human body or outside of the human body if it's in a high linoleic acid oil that is being heated. Where does linoleic acid come from in the human body? It comes from what we eat. We don't make any linoleic acid in the human body. That's why it's considered, quote, essential. But I think that the levels needed for optimal human physiology are much lower than what we consider today, that you basically could not avoid getting linoleic acid in your diet this is one of the reasons I'm such a fan of things like tallow or ghee or butter. They are animal fats with two to 3% linoleic acid in them relative to higher levels of linoleic acid in things like olive, avocado, or increasing to canola, cottonseed, soybean, et cetera. So you can look at the continuum of levels of linoleic acid in these oils. And I try personally to avoid any oil with larger amounts than two to 3% of linoleic acid in my diet. Egg yolks have more linoleic acid than that, but I don't use olive oil for that reason. Is olive oil going to be a problem for most of you? Probably not, but I think you would be better served by doing things like tallow or ghee or butter to get those levels of linoleic acid down more in your diet, especially depending on what your baseline level 
of linoleic acid in your fat cells and your adipocytes are and what your insulin sensitivity is. Now, let's pause here for one moment. One thing that I didn't mention early in the podcast was that I believe that fasting insulin levels should be used to diagnose diabetes. And if these were drawn more, we would see a massive increase in the diagnosis and treatment of prediabetes and diabetes. Looking at population levels of fasting insulin in Americans, the average fasting insulin for men is 8.8 micro IU per ml. The average fasting insulin for women is 8.4 micro IU per ml. If you look on a lab study, the reference range for fasting insulin goes to 15 or sometimes 20 micro IU per ml before it gets flagged. To me, that is abysmal. And that single oversight in the reference range is why we are missing prediabetes. Consider the fact that the average American fasting insulin is 8.6 micro IU per ml. And then consider that 87.8% of Americans have at least one indicator of the metabolic syndrome and realize that 8.6 micro IU per ml is probably much too high for most people. Every time that I've checked my fasting insulin, and I've shown this in my blood work multiple times, July, August of 2022, most recently I did two sets of labs, my fasting insulin is three micro IU per ml or lower. You can also look at a C-peptide if you want, but they tend to correlate very closely. I have low fasting levels of blood glucose, low hemoglobin A1C. You can go back to the blood work podcast if you want to see my labs. So when I am eating a diet that is animal-based, meat and organs, I get my organs fresh or from heart and soil supplements. The desiccated organs there are much easier for many people than the fresh organs. I take whole package and beef organs mostly on a daily basis, and I'm getting fruit, lots of fruit, honey, raw milk. This is an animal-based diet. I'm eating lots of saturated fat and my fasting insulin with carbohydrates often greater than 200 grams per day are less than three micro IU per ml. So if red meat, if saturated fat is causing diabetes, why am I not insulin resistant? It's just an anecdote, but it's an interesting experimental vessel. If fruit and carbohydrates are causing insulin resistance, regardless of the source, then why am I not insulin resistant? <laughs> so this all goes to say that I think that if you change your diet, your fasting insulin will go down, know what your fasting insulin is, and that should be the metric that most of us are looking at to know when we're diabetic, when we're pre-diabetic. My sister actually told me about her mother-in-law who was recently diagnosed as pre-diabetic. This is a woman who thinks a lot about her health, eats low fat, eats lots of grains, avoids red meat, uses oil on her salads very frequently, olive oil, probably some vegetable oil mixed in there. Her hemoglobin A1C was 5.9. The doctors didn't even check a fasting insulin, but I'm betting her fasting insulin insulin would have been eight or nine. They diagnosed her as pre-diabetic and recommended drugs. <laughs> they recommended metformin. They didn't even consider asking her about other dietary changes. They didn't consider cutting carbohydrates, changing grains, looking at sugars. She doesn't eat many of those. They didn't consider changing oils in her diet. Clearly something is wrong. Something is badly broken with the way we are diagnosing and thinking about insulin resistance, about diabetes in the Western medicine population. Let's return to HNE and where it comes from and broken fat cells. Here's one more study that looks at a high fat diet in mice, uh, inducing changes in adipose tissue and breakdown products of linoleic acid, including HNE. And what did they do? They gave mice diets that were higher in linoleic acid and they saw higher levels of HNE in certain fatty acid depots. This isn't that surprising because we know that when you lower linoleic acid, even in humans, 
we see lower levels of oxidized linoleic acid metabolites. There's a really interesting study from 2012. Uh, there's a really interesting study from 2012 by Chris Ramsden that shows that when you put people on a diet of lower amounts of linoleic acid for 12 weeks, this was actually done in a population that had chronic headaches. Uh, Oxlams, oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism, significantly decreased. So what we know is that if you decrease seed oils in a human's diet, this is a human study, it's an interventional trial in humans, we know that if you decrease seed oils in a human's diet, you get lower levels of linoleic acid in the human fat, you get lower levels of linoleic acid breakdown products in humans, and in these humans, you saw lower levels of headaches, I believe, in this trial or another trial as a separate endpoint. Similarly, interesting studies have been done with weight loss and linoleic acid reduction in humans. Very few people actually talk about these studies, and I probably should have talked about this study in my podcast on weight loss a couple of weeks ago. This is from 2014, the effect of a six-month intervention with cooking oils containing a high concentration of monounsaturated fats, olive and canola, compared with a control oil, which was a soybean oil, in male Asian Indians who had non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I haven't spoken much about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in this podcast yet, but that is a condition that is connected with, yes, you guessed it, insulin resistance, probably also connected with choline deficiency. But if you look at this study, what you find is that the commonly used oil in these Indian males was 50 to 60% polyunsaturated fatty acids, mostly um, linoleic acid. That is a soybean or safflower a high linoleic acid safflower oil. This was compared to oils that are relatively lower in linoleic acid. A 9% omega-6 oil, which was a olive pomace oil, again, not as good as a regular olive oil, and a 21% canola oil. Now, I'm not a huge fan of canola oil with 21% of linoleic acid, but relative to 50 to 60% of linoleic acid as a composition of soybean or high linoleic acid safflower oil, it's a significant improvement. Now, what did they find in this study? This was a six-month intervention involving 93 males. So you can see here that the olive oil group started with a lower level of fasting insulin, but at the end of the trial, the post-intervention differences between these were very statistically significant, with the control oil ending up at 11 micro-IU per ml for fasting insulin, the canola the canola oil group ending up at 4.9 and the olive oil group ending up at 3.0 micro IU per ml. So there's a clear trend here that decreasing the amount of linoleic acid in these oils in this interventional trial at the end of six months significantly decreased fasting insulin. I would say that's a pretty good indication they got less diabetic, that they got on a train that took them back to Los Angeles, took them back to insulin sensitivity. They were on a train going to New York, diabetes, I don't have anything against New York. This is just the metaphor I'm working with in this podcast. And they got off the train because they changed the amount of linoleic acid in their diet and they went back to Los Angeles. They got more insulin sensitive. Interestingly, at the end of this study, you can see that the weight loss in the olive oil group was statistically significant versus the control oil group. The canola, the canola oil group did not have a statistically significant decline in weight, but decreasing linoleic acid significantly in the olive pumice oil group led to statistically significant differences in weight loss with an ending weight of 72.8 kilograms in the olive oil group and the control oil group being 78.2 kilograms at the end of the experiment. So what the authors say here is that significant improvements in the grading of fatty liver, liver span, 
measures of insulin resistance and lipids with the, with the use of canola oil and olive oil compared with control oils occurred occurred in Asian Indians with NAFLD. I would go one step further and say that the significant weight loss occurred only in the olive oil group, but not the canola oil group. So that's an interventional study looking at linoleic acid reduction leading to improvements in insulin sensitivity, probably because of the fact that this excess linoleic acid accumulates in fat cells, leads to HNE, which we know leads to broken fat cells and disordered metabolic syndrome physiology. Hopefully this is all starting to make sense and come together. It's quite complicated. Here's yet another study. The consumption of extra virgin olive oil improves body composition and blood pressure in women with excess body fat. A randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trial. So I know many of you are saying, Paul, how can you not be a fan of olive oil when it's been shown to be beneficial in these trials? Look, if you wanna eat extra virgin olive oil, it's gonna be way better than seed oils for you. As I said earlier, my concern with extra virgin olive oil is number one, that it's very poor quality, most of it's oxidized. I've spoken about this in previous posts multiple times and on Instagram and Reels. And number two, it still has more linoleic acid than a animal fat. What we don't have are trials comparing the consumption of extra virgin olive oil or butter to a control fat like a soybean oil. We need a third or fourth arm looking at an animal fat. But the problem is that our mainstream paradigm is that these animal fats are bad for us because they raise LDL. So these studies are not being done. Hopefully we'll be able to change that with the Animal-Based Nutrition Research Foundation. I've mentioned this in the past. We're definitely uh, accepting funding if you guys wanna go to abnrf.org. And we're looking to start a trial with Stefan Van Vliet at Utah State University, looking at a controlled animal-based diet for autoimmune disease. But we need, uh, we need to do more trials in Western medicine looking at animal fats. That will probably only happen once we can actually think about the lipid hypothesis in a reasonable way and not be worried about animal fats that raise LDL, but also lead to weight loss and improvements in overall health and lead to insulin sensitivity. So that's a podcast for a different day, but hopefully that makes sense for the context here. Back to this study on the consumption of extra virgin olive oil. They found that extra virgin olive oil consumption reduced body fat, improved blood pressure um, relative to the control oil, which was a higher linoleic acid soybean oil in the control group. So this is olive oil versus soybean oil. Again, multiple intervention trials show that that is a good thing to do for weight loss, for blood pressure. And as many of you will know, if you've listened to my previous podcast on blood pressure, blood pressure is insulin resistance until proven otherwise. So the fact that in this trial, blood pressure improved suggests that changing from soybean oil to extra virgin olive oil will result in weight loss and improvements in blood pressure and probably improvements in insulin sensitivity, I would gather based on the underlying physiology of those. No matter how hard I try, I have been unable to convince my father to stop drinking glucerna, which is a weight loss drink that is garbage that has processed sugar and soybean oil in it. So maybe this podcast will convince him. Um, yeah, we'll try dad. If you're listening to this one, please stop drinking soybean oil and at least use olive oil instead of that, or better yet, just use tallow, dad, I'm telling you. I'd like you to be around for a little while. Thankfully, if you look at Verda Health, which is a organization that does ketogenic diets for people, which I think can be very helpful in diabetic physiology, they recommend against the consumption of high linoleic acid oils, which is great. They're gonna ask you to consume oils that are uh, lower in linoleic acid and higher in saturated fats or monounsaturated fats. Uh, so I think that's a good thing. I would actually think that this beef fat is probably the best thing you could consume. 
on this list or perhaps butter or cream because of the other animal-based nutrients, things I've talked about in the past, like stearic acid, odd-chain fatty acids, which we know are beneficial for humans, but very few people ever talk about. If you're interested in HNE, there's a good review article that I will share here for you to look at. 4-hydroxynonanol in the pathogenesis and progression of human diseases. It's a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but that molecule alone appears to be quite problematic for many humans. Now, one more study here, and we'll move on to how to fix your diabetes, the impact of an eight-week linoleic acid intake in soy oil on LPPLA2 in activity in healthy adults. LPPLA2 is lipoprotein PLA2, and it is associated with cardiovascular disease and risk for cardiovascular disease. They say that an increase in plasma linoleic acid following intake of soy oil was independently associated with increased LPPLA2 activity, which was also related to ApoB, oxidized LDL, and CEPICT, which is the changes in the collagen epinephrine closure time. And that has to do perhaps with endothelial function. Again, kind of a esoteric metric for cardiovascular health. But the fact that, again, increasing dietary linoleic acid, increased oxidized LDL is not a good thing. And I don't know how we ignore that when the Mayo Clinic is advising people to eat more linoleic acid if you have diabetes, guys. Remember that. That was the beginning of the podcast. Don't forget about that part. So let's draw this podcast to a close with some discussion of what to do if you have diabetes, what to do if you are pre-diabetic, what to do if you have a high fasting insulin. The first thing to know here is that it, you better know if you're on the train, right? If you're on the diabetes train, you better know and you better get off. How do you know? Get a freaking fasting insulin. What should it be? It should be less than five. Ideally, it should be less than three micro IU per ml. If your fasting insulin is eight, you've got a problem. That's the average in the country. And remember, most of the country is pre-diabetic and has metrics which suggest that they have metabolic syndrome. So get off the train. How do you do that? Reduce the amount of linoleic acid in your diet as much as possible. How do you do that? Get rid of seed oils. Stop canola, stop corn, stop cotton seeds, stop soybean, stop them all. If you wanna use olive, it's better than all those, but it still has more linoleic acid than I think is ideal for humans. And I think the ideal situation for most humans would be tallow, ghee, or butter. Yes, they may raise your LDL for reasons I've spoken about in other podcasts. No, I don't think that's a problem because you will become insulin sensitive as you make these changes in your diet. And I believe that insulin sensitivity is the single greatest important metric to know about when you are thinking about your cardiovascular risk, your risk of high blood pressure, dementia, cancer, et cetera. As I said, this is the single most important part of any one of your health journeys, knowing how insulin sensitive you are, knowing you if you are on the diabetes train. So there is a great trial that I talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with John Abramson. That was a really interesting one looking at pharma corruption. This is the Diabetes Prevention Program Trial. This is a reduction in the incidence of type 2 diabetes with lifestyle intervention or metformin. What's most striking about this study is that if you look at this, lifestyle change was significantly better at reducing diabetes incidence than a drug metformin. But what did my sister's mother-in-law get recommended? Metformin. What was the lifestyle modification here? There were goals of at least 7% weight loss, 150 minutes of physical activity per week. That was it. Weight loss and physical activity significantly improved diabetes and metrics of insulin sensitivity, much more than metformin, a drug that we know has significant side effects, including lowering B12 and other negative side effects. Yes, it will improve things in the short term, but I think that it would be much better to change the lifestyle. And the adherence here was very good. People did this lifestyle intervention when it was coached 
properly to them. I think that if they'd added reduction in linoleic acid to this program, they would have seen even more improvement in diabetic metrics. So yes, metformin is a drug that works. Yes, there are drugs that work for diabetes. No, they do not treat the root cause. And yes, they will have side effects that come with them, which I think can be very negative for humans. So another very interesting thing that I want to talk about is a ketogenic diet. Many of you know, if you've listened to my recent discussions, that I think for those of us who are insulin sensitive, a ketogenic diet is not worth it. Including carbohydrates in my diet was a very significant improvement in my overall health. I had improvements in muscle cramping, testosterone, sleep, et cetera, because we need postprandial insulin to hold on to electrolytes. For those of you who have insulin resistance, doing a ketogenic diet, for those of you who have insulin resistance, an elevated fasting insulin above five or even eight, I think a ketogenic diet can be very helpful in the short term, and I'll tell you why. One of the physiologic processes that happens in a ketogenic diet is called beta-oxidation. That's how we break down fatty acid molecules and part of how ketones are made. Well, as it turns out, beta-oxidation is also the pathway by which HNE is broken down. And in studies in animal models, which probably have the same physiology as humans, putting animals into a ketogenic state increased beta-oxidation and led to higher levels of HNE breakdown. I get asked a question all the time, how do I get rid of excess seed oils in my body? And I didn't really have a good answer other than eating higher amounts of animal fats and lower amounts of linoleic acid in your diet and getting rid of all the oils that have excess amounts of linoleic acid, including olive oil, until I saw this study recently. And it made me think, hmm, I guess there probably really is a reasonable hypothesis here that if you have diabetes and insulin resistance, some term of ketogenesis, maybe maybe cyclic ketogenesis, maybe six months to a year, may improve your body's disposal of these aldehyde breakdown products as that linoleic acid is broken down or oxidized in your human body. Maybe people with diabetes really should be on a ketogenic diet to upregulate beta-oxidation to quote-unquote detoxify HNE. It's a compelling hypothesis that I think needs to be tested. We need to look at people and their levels of HNE on ketogenic diets. Now, what we know is that people on ketogenic diets seem to do pretty well with diabetes. I just think that that gets conflated with being on a ketogenic diet all the time, and I've seen that be very harmful for many people. So the takeaway here is that if you have diabetes, if you have insulin resistance, doing a low-carbohydrate diet, doing a very low-carbohydrate diet may be beneficial by upregulating beta-oxidation. My colleagues in the ketogenic world would be very excited that I'm saying this because I've not been super excited about ketogenic diets for many of you in the past. And upregulation of beta-oxidation may help us get rid of HNE faster, may improve this process. So I think that's a reasonable thing to do for many of you um, who are in this position. If you are someone that is insulin sensitive, I think getting carbohydrates in your diet is a very valuable thing. And I think that many people who have diabetes will not need to be ketogenic long-term. I think you can reverse the diabetes. Perhaps you get rid of the HNE through beta-oxidation. Perhaps you change the dietary composition of these oils and you get rid of that excess linoleic acid, we know there's a turnover there in your body gradually over time. And once that linoleic acid and those breakdown products are gone, have returned to what I considered physiologic normal levels, evolutionarily consistent levels, then you probably can include carbohydrates back in your diet and get the benefits of those foods, such as electrolyte maintenance because of postprandial insulin at the level of the kidney, something I've talked about previously on why I quit a ketogenic diet, dangers of a ketogenic diet, type of video. So hopefully that all makes sense in the context of this further discussion. So in summary, if you're on the diabetes train, if your fasting glucose is elevated, if your A1C is elevated, if your fasting insulin is elevated, get off the train. How do you do that? 
I think it's pretty obvious you want to get rid of processed sugars, but you also want to get rid of seed oils that are high in linoleic acid. That piece is what is not discussed. That piece is what I think, that piece is what I think is mainly missed. Even the Mayo Clinic is recommending that you eat seed oils, despite the fact there is good evidence that those oils break down into toxic aldehyde products that lead to broken fat cells with impaired adipogenesis, with impaired hyperplasia, increased levels of oxidative stress, free fatty acids in the bloodstream, and diabetic physiology. Why are we not getting those out of our diet? I don't know. When there's good trials that show improved weight loss, improved insulin sensitivity with lowering linoleic acid in your diet. How do you get the lowest levels of linoleic acid in your diet? You eat something like tallow or butter or ghee for your animal fats, for all of your fats. You don't even eat olive oil, though olive oil is probably much better than things like canola, definitely better than things like cottonseed, soybean, grapeseed, et cetera. I know many of you will ask about avocado oil. I'm not a huge fan of this. I previously did a reel on this, and I think I've talked about it in previous podcasts. If you look at the quality of avocado oils, they're generally very bad, they're oxidized, and many of them are cut with vegetable oils. I don't see the point of avocado oil when you could use a animal fat. And I think that in general, extra virgin olive oil is probably gonna be better quality than most avocado oils, but even that has more linoleic acid than an animal fat. So I think that if you use olive oil, we just don't know if that's going to slow your progression, slow your improvement from a diabetic, pre-diabetic state. And I don't miss anything not having olive oil in my diet. I don't understand why most people actually cook in oils in the first place. I use a grill and I cook my meat on the grill. And if I need more fat on the meat, which I often do, even with 80, 20 ground beef, I want it to be fattier. I'll use a raw butter or a tallow on there. So those are the animal fats that I think are the best. They're the lowest in linoleic acid. So that I think paired with removal of excess carbohydrates, grain-based carbohydrates, high fructose corn syrup from your diet will result in improvements in your diabetes. That's how you do it. The Mayo Clinic has it partially right, but they're way off base in terms of the oils. And perhaps that's why so many people continue to get diabetes, get diagnosed with diabetes, because we're not telling them dangers of these oils. Like I've said before on other podcasts, like I've said on Instagram content, there should be a warning label on the side of a Lay's package with somebody who's morbidly obese, who has erectile dysfunction, sleep apnea, and perhaps other issues, including diabetes, because those foods lead to those states. And we're not being honest about that with consumers. We do it on the side of cigarettes. I think this is exactly the same thing with regard to junk foods, but we need to really push for more research in this space so that the entire medical community can wake up and realize how they've been misled and how badly uh, they're being taught, especially in medical schools. That's something that's a real problem for me um, in the medical school equation right now. Before I wrap this one up, I want to say a few words about type 1 diabetes and share a case study um, looking at re reversal of type 1 diabetes with a paleolithic ketogenic diet, which is actually a strict carnivore diet. Um, this is a child. So early on in the course of type 1 diabetes diagnosis, there was a 19-year-old type 1 diabetes patient who was diagnosed very recently. They shifted to a fully animal-based diet, a fully uh, carnivorous diet, which was low in carbohydrates, and the autoimmune condition actually reversed. Uh, they said that the child was able to continue without insulin for 19 months, which is pretty incredible because there are very few cases in the medical literature of reversal of autoimmune conditions, especially type 1 diabetes with diet, this suggests that there's something in the diet that is probably causing these autoimmune conditions in type 1 diabetes. That's not surprising. They also note that no hypoglycemic episodes occurred on the diet. 
Uh, several other benefits were achieved, including improved physical fitness, reduction of upper respiratory tract infections, and eczema. Imagine that. <laughs> other autoimmune conditions getting better when you put someone on an elimination diet, like a strict carnivore diet, in this case called a paleolithic ketogenic diet, and improvement in a massive autoimmune condition, which would have changed this individual's life for the worse, they would have been on insulin their whole life if their autoimmune condition had progressed and their immune system had continued to do damage to their own pancreas. So that is quite compelling. What it actually is in the diet that is causing these autoimmune conditions, we're not totally sure. I think it probably could be dairy for many people. And I've spoken a lot recently about differences between raw and pasteurized dairy. My hypothesis here would be that the pasteurization process changes the conformation of the whey protein and creates an immunogenic protein. Now. Only the last part of the hypothesis is actually my hypothesis. We know that heating whey protein causes conformational changes uh, above 65 degrees centigrade, and I think that that could then be immunogenic for people. I think we also should not be feeding kids gluten, but what are the main things fed to kids? Rice crackers, wheat crackers, oats, all of which could be contaminated with gluten. Obviously, wheat is the main source of gluten in most of these kids' diets, pasta. These could certainly be immunogenic for these kids, and could this contribute to autoimmune conditions in some of these kids? Absolutely, I think it could. Why did this individual's eczema get better when they cut out all those immunogenic foods? Because here's an important case study. It's an anecdote, yes, but when we now have thousands, if not tens of thousands of these anecdotes, we cannot ignore the fact that these elimination diets that often cut out the majority plant foods or all plant foods can be very powerful for autoimmune conditions. And as I said before, I don't think you're missing anything by cutting vegetables out of your diet, especially if you're getting organs, fresh or at hardened soil supplements, you're getting meat from a good source, you're getting fruit, you're getting honey, you're getting raw dairy. What are you missing from your diet? You're getting fiber. People might say, oh, phytonutrients, that's a conversation for a separate podcast. I think they're mostly uh, bullshit and overblown anyway. And we know as if you listen to the podcast I've done with Stephen Van Vliet, that some of these plant compounds end up in grass-fed meat anyway. So I think for many people, an autoimmune protocol that reduces vegetables can be very powerful, though we're just stuck in our paradigm so much that we can't look outside and imagine that these foods could be causing harm. Or pasteurized dairy as well could be causing harm for some people. So that's what I'll say about type 1 diabetes. I have seen many cases of type 1 diabetes improve with either ketogenic diets or very low carbohydrate diets. I think uh, less of a carbohydrate-based, animal-based diet is probably appropriate if you have type 1 diabetes because your body is going to have such trouble regulating that insulin. Uh, in that case, I would adjust the carbohydrates slightly. So, And I think that if there are kids who are recently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. An autoimmune protocol like a strict carnivore diet could be really powerful for those individuals, as we see from that case study. It's, again, the notion here, the framing for all this work I do is that if you are thriving, why change anything about your diet? I do this work for those of you who are suffering, who are not finding answers, and who are willing and able and curious and brave enough to question your nutritional assumptions and hopefully find freedom from that suffering. So with that, I will wrap up this podcast. I hope it's helpful. If you know someone with pre-diabetes or diabetes, I hope you will send it to them because I believe this could help them massively and could improve all of the people that they interact with, all of the families. I mean, this is affecting so many of us today. And I think that we are missing the main culprits right in front of our faces because of lack of research, because of dietary um, confusion, and because of obfuscation of the research by people who don't understand what's going on here. So Hopefully this is helpful, guys. Let me know what you think in the comments. Subscribe, hit the like button below if you're on YouTube. Appreciate you all.